I love parts of what I do. I've, I've found things that I love doing. Um, I, I've learned that, you know, what I love doing sort of shifts and grows and morphs over time too. How do you get more clients? It's a question that businesses, small and large, from Wall Street to Main Street, contemplate every single day. Clients are what make your business possible, and we can all use a few more clients, right? So what's the answer? You heard me say this before, but just for the record, clients hire who they know, who they trust, and who they like. It seems pretty obvious, right? You can only hire someone you know. You can only buy the services or goods of a brand you're aware of. Yet, so many creatives out there, yes, I'm talking to you, do so little to help make themselves easier to find. You can't just build a website and hope people are going to show up in droves and throw cash at you. Since this channel is dedicated to helping creative entrepreneurs succeed, I'll throw out a business term that you need to know. It's called top of the funnel awareness. And if you're not aware of this term or concept, it could be why your phone isn't ringing off the hook. How do you gain or grow awareness, you might ask? Well, you could start with search, or more appropriately, search engine optimization. There are many people out there who help clients get organic, top-of-the-page search results in Google. I happen to know one of them, and he's on the show. Coming up, Ryan and I are going to talk about how he got into the business of content marketing, how his ecosystem works, and how he's creating a path for others to do the same. But first, Ryan is going to describe what it is that he does. Today, content marketing consultant. That's probably the easiest way to describe myself and what I do. Um, and so I, I work with companies like uh, Close.io, um, Zendesk, LinkedIn, um, QuickBooks, and I basically partner with them to create long-form content for their blogs and publish it and then go out and promote it. So a lot of that, you know, is SEO. It's how to build an audience, things like that. So that's sort of, um, it's actually a bit of what I studied in school, taking it back. Yeah, let's see. When did I graduate? I graduated from college in 2008. So I'm 28 now. Um, and I've basically been doing marketing sales related roles ever since I graduated from college. So it's been kind of a slow build of initially getting really interested in online marketing from my online marketing class in college. And so I've got to definitely throw a shout out to my professor who really piqued my interest. Um, Nicholas Meir is his name at Chapman University down in uh, Orange County, California. And that was sort of where where I registered the domain name for my website. Um, I began blogging. I started sort of figuring out my way into content marketing from there. And then, yeah, led into my first job doing marketing. Okay, so if we rewind the tape a little bit, you were in high school mm -hmm. already thinking about wanting to be working in the marketing space? College. Yeah. Once I was in college, college. So I, what I really did you think you were going to do when you were in high school? Oh, and the, re man. the reason question. why I ask this is because for, for people like you and me who, once we figured it out, we kind of zeroed in and we went deep. But there's a lot of people that are just still trying to figure it out mm -hmm. themselves. And so they always ask me, like, how do you know this is for me? So I want to try and figure that out with you. Like, when did it become clear for you this is what you wanted to do? Or what ideas did you have about what you wanted to do when you grew up? You know, 
I don't think what I'm doing now really became clear until I would say about four years ago, five years ago, maybe. Um, I had the interest in marketing starting back in college, but you know, to be honest, when I was in high school, if we want to go back that far, I actually really thought I would go into finance or something related to finance. So accounting was one sort of consideration, um, mostly because I had you know cousins, uncles that were accountants and. And the, the stability afforded to a profession like that is obviously one of the more attractive features. At least it was in sort of how I was taught by, you know, my parents, like stability, job security, all those sorts of things being hailed supreme, right? Right. Um, and, and accounting, finance, all those things seemed really secure. Um, and actually, the year I started college was the year of the financial collapse in the U.S., 2000 and late 2007, early 2008. Right. And so that was sort of, you know, for me, a refocal or a refocus point rather to where I was thinking more about like seeing, you know, at this age of 18, 19 years old, like job security really isn't that what it's cracked up to be. Um, Mm -hmm. I knew a lot of people who were, you know, five or six years older than me or friends of my parents that lost their jobs at that point in time. Um, And so it sort of shifted me over to thinking about like, running my own business. You know, what does that look like? What kind of products should I make? What kinds of services can I offer? And and at that point in time, I was 18, 19 years old, I really didn't have anything. So I sort of took to um, taking internships as a way to begin testing my way into what I would like to do. So I had, you know, a finance internship. I interned at a mobile app development startup. And that was kind of, you know, in combination with taking some online marketing classes in college that first internship I had at the app development startup was where I really started to get into marketing. Very interesting. So you're 18, 19, you're out of high school, you're interning while going to school? Correct. Okay. And you're in SoCal? Yep. In Orange County, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. And it is as beautiful as they say it is. (laughs) (laughs) And so while at this mobile app startup, what did you see? What sparked that idea that this is kind of like, oh, I'm kind of getting a feeling about where this might be going. So I had a boss, the the guy who started the app development, com- app development company was really, really cool. And he, he sort of took me under his wing. Um, one thing that I would say was a superpower of his was partnerships. So we were in Southern California. Um, he went really hard on like building apps for NBA players, um, partnering with like 50 Cent on on creating an app. And so his whole thing was like growing his brand and his company through partnerships with name brand people. And so, I mean, they built the app for Taco Bell, like right around when Doritos Locos Tacos came out. Um, and so I got to be there for for witnessing that and the company just exploded. And so I was sort of in this really cool position where I was helping um, basically the the company try and get more app downloads was sort of my primary goal. But I got to sit in on really cool meetings with um, important, <laughs> air quotes, important people um, and see like what goes into structuring partnerships. You know, we were making agreements with someone like 50 Cent where it's like, okay, if we're going to, you know, basically make this app for you essentially cost free, you need to do X, Y, and Z in promoting it and, you know, doing so until we have X number of users downloading the app from your audience. So it was kind of a a cool lesson. And, you know, for me, the different ways the marketing can go in. 
okay, so now that you're seeing this whole world, how does this parallel? Then do you make a shift in school or do you focus on certain classes? How does that transpire? You know, honestly, I, I kind of was already on this track where mm-hmm. um, I was I was studying business primarily, and then you could do little concentrations at Chapman. So my my concentration was in entrepreneurship, um, and that was really going back to the the thing with the financial crash. That was kind of sparked my first year in college. I decided, okay, I want to learn more about entrepreneurship and, and start building my basically my tool set of skills that I'll be able to use when I'm able to start my own business, when I have that right sort of idea to go with. And so I was studying um, business with a focus on entrepreneurship, and then I threw in marketing as well as sort of an additional focus area. And that's kind of what led to um, getting a little bit more interested in content marketing. And that's where I have my online marketing class. I I (laughs) registered my domain with that class, and that's when I began blogging. Okay, so I'm a, I'm familiar with the general concept of content marketing. You've mentioned a couple of times and you kind of gave us a broad overview of it. Let, let's just kind of expand on that a little bit. What is the purpose of content marketing? Like why does a company engage in content marketing? I love this question. I think I think the definition of content marketing will vary based on who you ask. But for me, the way that I view content marketing is essentially education. So it's using your own experience, your own skills, your sort of core competencies to teach people something related to your business. So I think that the brands that are most effective at content marketing are essentially in a race to the top to give as much possible value to their potential customers in hopes that, you know, okay, this brand is teaching me how to do almost, you know, 90% of, of what their paid product does. And they're, they're banking on the fact that, okay, if we can be the ultimate resource teaching you everything about, you know, sales, for example, then, you know, when you're ready to take things to the next level, you'll come and you'll buy our paid products or services. And that's, you know, essentially how I boil it down. There's tons of different mediums that you can use to deliver content marketing, things like, you know, written content, which is really my specialty. Um, podcasting like we're doing here mm-hmm. creates content video um, interviewing people there's a whole sort of list of different ways that you can go about content marketing but I think yeah essentially at its core it's basically you know using your skills and experience to teach other people something and then basically you say it's a race to the top and the thing that you didn't say but you implied was this content is given away for free yes yeah good distinction so I think that the best content marketing is given away for free. Um, you see plenty of stuff that's like a, a gated course or an ebook where you know people exchange their email address or you know a dollar or something to to grab a free trial or to pick up your free resource that's more in depth. But you know my argument with content marketing and in, in being a race to the top is that everyone is publishing two thousand, three thousand word blog posts now. And so the the bar for delivering value is continually being moved up. Okay, so how does one, if you're in a field and you have a core competency, the assumption is then there are a lot of other people in the same space. How do you make your content stand out that it's more valuable than the next guys? That is the million dollar question. I can tell you how how I've done it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's different for everyone. I think it, it does have to back into what your own unique strengths are, right? So 
speaking to someone like, you know, designers, maybe we have a lot of designers listening. So I wouldn't, if I was a designer, I wouldn't be trying to write 10,000 word blog posts. I would be going out and doing like super in-depth design teardowns for the brands that I want to work with or, you know, coming up with critiques on what they're, you know, if a, if a company just did a rebrand, I want to work with them on a project, I would do some sort of critique or come up with, you know, like a, a video talking about these are the the biggest mistakes this brand made in their rebrand or the things that I like about it. So I would be taking what I view as my own unique strengths and applying it to creating something unique. So, you know, for me, what that usually backs into is writing is fairly easy for me. So I really don't publish anything on my blog anymore. That's less than 5,000 words. Um, most posts, I would say around 10,000 words in length. And it's just because I'm trying to be the definitive resource on a topic every time I publish something. And that's sort of how I've chosen to differentiate myself. And I think there are tons of examples of people who, you know, someone like Gary Vaynerchuk um, obviously is in a very different place than just about anyone else today with the size of his audience. But one thing that he has done really, really well since day one is use video to his advantage. So the dude is incredibly high energy. He can just go on and on and on and on with a camera point in front of him. And so he leaned into that. And video has been like the biggest part of his strategy since day one. He's not not primarily a writer. So dude's got millions of YouTube followers or yeah, on his YouTube channel. So that's that's kind of how he's chosen to differentiate himself. Mm-hmm. So a lot of what you're talking about, you're talking when you say design teardowns or critiques or biggest mistakes, you're providing your opinion as a quote unquote expert on something that's happened. So if you say something that's been very hot, a couple of like logo rebrands, things like that, people love, especially within the design community, they love to like tear those things apart. Mm-hmm. So you're going to opine on that. So how does that help you ultimately gather or gain a client for yourself? If you attack the Dropbox redesign or the F1 logo mm-hmm. redesign, how does that help you? I think, you know, personally what I do um, when I'm do when I'm taking this process is I will just create my content um, similar to if I were to do a design teardown, I would publish an in-depth post on my blog that, that I know there's this, you know, group of companies that I want to build relationships with. And so I will mention them in my blog posts. And, and with the example of a design teardown, you're basically doing this for them. So what I do after this thing is published, whatever it is, is I'll reach out to people at the company and I'll reach out to tons of people if I don't hear back from the first person I reach out to. And I'll I'll just sort of go on down the line of, for me, wanting to hit someone in marketing um, because that's going to be the decision maker, like a director of content marketing or something would be the decision maker for hiring a freelancer like myself. And so you know, speaking to kind of the the designer persona here, if you create a teardown, I would reach out to a creative director or someone in a similar role and just say, you know, don't ask him for anything. Just say like, hey, I created this, you know, this teardown. I, I loved this. I hated this. Just wanted to share my thoughts and and kind of leave it at that. Don't don't expect them to, to immediately say, oh my God, I want to hire you. Um, but it's all about building relationships. And, and I will put a little caveat on this. Um, with the majority of people I reach out to after I publish content, it doesn't turn into a paid relationship upon immediately, you know, first email or first conversation. It's it's all a longer term relationship building experience. Mm-hmm. 
And how are you reaching out to them? Are you reaching them out, out to them via Twitter, email, or something like that? I do email. Um, okay. I think you can you can argue for um, any platform if it's clear that they're spending their time there. So primarily, I'm thinking most of the people who are content marketers are spending a lot of time in their inbox, and that's why I go for. I see. And you, how did you acquire their email address in the first place? Is it through sleuthing around? Did you buy a list? How did you get that? Oh man, I'm a hardcore internet sleuth. Um, <laughs> I talk all about this process in a like 10,000 word post on my blog. It's actually, um, it's ryrob.com slash cold. And then it'll take you to this humongous post on doing cold outreach. But to to kind of like boil it down into its, its basically um, essential elements, I will go to LinkedIn and first figure out who I want to reach out to. So Got to know who first. And so for me, reaching out to marketers, I'll type in like marketing in the search bar and then I'll, I'll click people with the skill of marketing or with the job title of marketing. And then I'll filter on the side with, you know, this specific company. So then I get this list of people who are related to marketing at, you know, say Trello, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, I, I've been doing this long enough to now know that there are basically five or six email naming conventions that 90% of companies and people will use. So, you know, something like first name at or first dot last at. Um, And I'll just basically cycle through those and verify using a Chrome extension for Gmail called Reportive. It's R-A-P-P-O-R-T-I-V-E. And basically when you have this Reportive extension installed, Um, when you hover over an email address, so, you know, again, typing in first name at Trello.com, when I hover over that with my cursor, a little sidebar will pop up on the right. And, um, if that email address is indeed connected to their LinkedIn account, so again, not always 100% accurate, um, but if they have their work email connected to their Gmail account, it'll pop up a ton of information. It'll pull in all this stuff from their LinkedIn profile, you know, links to, Twitter, Facebook, job title. And so that's kind of how I will just guess and check. I'm uh, I'm sure some people are listening right now and kind of <laughs> foaming at the mouth while other people are cringing, saying, uh-oh, my email isn't safe anymore because guys like Ryan can just dive in and figure <laughs> it out. Those, those are some excellent tips. And because... Uh, Somebody might be jogging or listening to this in the car. I just want to go over the e- uh, the, the website again. It's ryrob.com. And it's R-Y, like Ryan, ryrob.com slash cold, C-O-L-D, correct? Correct. Yeah. And you have a, a, a massive article on exactly what you just talked about. So you guys just got the high-level way of snaking your way around and finding people's email <laughs> addresses. I took notes there. I did take and notes. And I will say I'm, I'm currently... So I'm in the early stages of building a tool to essentially automate this process, which, you know, for some people might be even scarier. (laughs) So you would just punch in a person's name and a company and and they'll just figure it out. Right. So basically, yeah, the the idea is um, a Chrome extension that can scan any page. So think a blog post um, and then determine, you know, who are the key decision makers in marketing at the company behind all the URLs, all the external URLs on the page. So this is like a hardcore content marketer tool. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, like once you have your list of people, then it cycles through this testing process and, and presents you with, you know, the most likely email address for them. Mm-hmm. 
So that's great. That, that was super actionable. What what you're doing, I think some people refer to as social prospecting when you're going on LinkedIn and sure. you're looking for somebody very specific to talk to in the company. And this is a great way to do it. Mm-hmm. Beautiful job there. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay. I also like that you, you're very real about this to say that you need to build a long-term relationship with somebody. A lot of people don't understand. They want an instant conversion. The minute you talk to somebody, the minute you shoot an email is when they say, oh, here's a $100,000 job for you. In, <laughs> in the real world, it doesn't work like that. Those kinds of transactions tend to be very small transactions. Like when you're at the supermarket and there's a $50 stick of gum, you buy it, it's an impulse buy. But anything of real value, it's, there's a lot of micro conversions that lead into a big one. So you're escalating the level of commitment. And so what you're doing is trying to make it real easy because... I think everybody has their guard up when you try to market to them right away. They shut oh, that yeah. stuff down because that's what everybody's doing to them. So yeah. you'll write an article that you think will be interesting to a handful of people, somebody with a marketing title in their in their name somewhere, and you'll you'll share that with them via email. That's totally clear. So then what happens mm-hmm. after that? I'll usually sort of frame my outreach around, you know, subject line to get even more tactile here, subject line of something like, you know, your feature on my blog, or if it's for one of my publication columns, you know, your feature on Forbes. And honestly, who doesn't want to open an email like that, right? So mm-hmm. that's kind of the step one is is writing a subject line that your your prospect is going to, you know, number one, care about. But then number two, not be pissed that they opened the email. So you don't want to do mm. something that's super slimy, like, you know, I can't even think of a, a, a bad example of a subject line right now, but something that basically tricks them into right. opening your email because that's, like that's as bad as never being opened. Exactly. Right. Exactly. So, you know, I'll, I'll keep the initial email at sort of like, you know, hey, just, just featured you in this post over here. Um, wanted to make sure this was the right way to describe the company or, or something like that. Oh. And, and I'll, I'll sort of call to action, like, you know, click through, check it out, make sure the mention is right or that I'm, I have the correct link in here. Um, and I'll say that, you know, before I start promoting it or before I syndicate it over to Inc. Magazine or something like that. So sort of adding that urgency component to it as well. Now I'm going to imagine, Ryan... There's an article on this that you've written as well on how to write subject lines and get an engaging email going, correct or incorrect? <laughs> that is all lumped into that same post on cold email. Oh, yeah. a two for one. So I break down I break that. down different types of case studies and use cases within that post, yeah. And there's tons of screenshots and stuff. It's, it's honestly one of my most exciting posts I've written in a long time. Mm. Uh, do you know the stats on that, the numbers of how many people have looked at that page? Oh gosh, I I looked at this like a couple of weeks ago. It's been about somewhere between I'd say now between forty and fifty thousand hits. Mm-hmm. Wow! Since it went up in I think it went up in like July of this mm-hmm. year, two thousand seventeen. Is that yeah. so? Not, not bad. A high performing article or a post for you? That is 
climbing into being a high performer. So my my like real metric of success is mm-hmm. is ranking in the top three positions for organic search in Google. So mm. it's it's now on the bottom, I think, of page one. If you type in like cold email or cold emailing, cold email template, how to write cold emails, things like that. So for for some of those keyword phrases, it's cracking the first page and and God, we could go so deep on how to get it up to the top, but that's that is something I'm working on. Yeah. Okay. So now we know what your metric is. That's great. So here's the so here's an SEO question here because I'm asking Twitter to help me out too because my relationship with you is pretty new. It's through a mutual friend, Ian Paget, and so I've asked my community like, hey, what do you want me to ask Ryan? So here it goes, Bernard Borg, and this is the first time I'm doing this. It's almost like a real time offset time thing. So he <laughs> wants to it. know. What is the future of SEO? I know that's a big, broad question. So how do you want to handle that? Yeah. Oh, my God. Huge, broad question. I think, um, I mean, taking it from the highest level first, I think that, um, you know, looking back 10 years ago and seeing what content was like then and what the search engines rewarded as content back then and zooming up to today, um, it's basically SEO is moving towards cutting out the shit and only delivering hyper relevant targeted in-depth answers to the questions people are asking so you know people are basically moving towards searching in terms of questions right so you'll you'll type in questions or you'll type in a phrase that's related to a question so taking my example of cold emailing some people will type in how to write cold email and you know you might not use the question mark anymore like you kind of just expect that this keyword phrase of how to write a cold email will will return the right results for you. And I think the search engines are getting better and better at detecting who's trying to game the system by just mm. like keyword stuffing. So if you have like a, an article that's a thousand words long, you know, being a short article in my opinion, and you have the words cold email in succession, like, you know, a hundred times or something within that article, then you're probably going to get hit for being spammy content. So that's kind of why I lean towards, and then this sort of backs into the future of SEO and content marketing. I think the that depth is becoming more important and content is only going to keep getting longer, whether that's you know video content that is then transcribed and posted onto a page for SEO benefits or you know, just written content. I think it's only going to be getting longer because that's that's sort of what the search engines are rewarding currently. They they reward depth. They reward what they think the best answer is going to be, not just something that's that's listing a keyword x number of times. So I think SEO is now less mechanical and more of an art. So the people that have tried to game the system early on are going to be penalized. So I guess what I'm hearing from you is if you want to do well, you have to actually create something of value and and be the expert, the authority on something. Right. And I think that that authority, if we're talking SEO, that authority can come from a lot of different ways. And I think, you know, primarily what people should be, people who are listening today should be thinking of in terms of authority is like getting massive sites or reputable sites, um, high domain authority sites to point towards your content. And that's sort of comes back into the picture of where, um, you know, I'm a contributor for sites like Forbes and Entrepreneur Business Insider. Um, And I I do that largely because it gives me an opportunity to tastefully (laughs) 
you know, with an <laughs> asterisk, do it tastefully. You can't be a self promoter, an endless self promoter rather. But when I have the opportunity to write for some of these sites and point back at my content to, you know, basically here's a preview on Forbes and here's where you can go to get a more in-depth guide version of this if you want. Um, and having those links from those sites that have been around forever that, that Google recognizes as highly authoritative um, is the way to build up your own domain authority. How do those publications tend to view this backlinking strategy? It's become something that honestly everyone does. Um, so you see like, you know, a, a reaction to this from Entrepreneur Magazine um, they now do no follow links on all external links from their publication. So that's a way of sort of like cutting some of the SEO benefit, you could say. Um, and, and a no follow link for everyone listening who doesn't know what that is, is basically it's a link from entrepreneur to, you know, back to my blog. If I, if I do that link, they're no following it, which means they're not passing SEO benefits. They're telling Google you know, don't reward this link as something valuable, basically. Um, so you can still get traffic from something like that. So there's a value there. But, you know, a lot of the publications are moving in this direction of like, you know, if everyone is using this as a distribution channel to promote themselves, um, we're going to take some of that promotion benefit away. But at the same time, it's, it's kind of like, you know, they want and need people to be contributing good content anyway. So it's a balancing act. And I think, you know, you see some publications fall on one side of the argument, some on others, right? So so the sites like Forbes will will continue giving value to those external links because they, I mean, they get, I mean, gosh, probably well over a hundred plus contributor articles submitted a day. And that's sort of what they rely on to be competitive is free mm -hmm. content. Mm-hmm. So the idea of the no follow link, this is kind of coded into the site somehow where it says, don't help them with SEO. You can still send traffic that way. And they right. do that because maybe they feel like they don't want to get used, like you're gaming them in a way. But as the same token, they're getting free content from you as a writer contributor and assuming you don't get paid for any of that stuff, right? Right. I think, um, you know, me personally, I choose not to get paid from, from the sites I contribute to because when you take a paid arrangement with them, it usually comes with some sort of minimum contribution. So like with Forbes, I think the deal was if you want to get paid, um, you have to submit five articles a month. Mm -hmm. And for me, that, that would be a lot um, right. on top of like client work and things like that. So it kind of depends on what makes sense for you. And I, okay. I think... You know, most people that I know who who took the paid route earn between I think like seven hundred and a thousand dollars a month. So it's it's much less that you earn per article than than I do going out and being a consultant. But you know, again, sometimes they try and get creative with their their rewards. They compensate you for you know if you have an article that does a hundred thousand page views for them, um, then you'll get rewarded based on page views to some degree. Before we continue, here's John Roth. Heyo, John Roth here from the future. I'm here to tell you guys about the Pro Membership. A lot of you have been asking about how you can engage with us and where you can go to meet like-minded individuals. Well, I'm here to tell you how. For $75 a month with the Pro Membership, you can join Chris Doe's collective of creative entrepreneurs, which includes everyone from designers to strategists to writers and more from all over the world. Also included is over 40 hours of exclusive videos on a variety of topics, 
from the business of design to project management, and access to two pro calls a month, where you can have your questions answered by Chris live. All that and more in your pro membership for just $75 a month. Not afraid of commitment? Sign up for a year and save $150. The pro membership, exclusively in the online store. Go to thefuture.com slash shop for more. Well, you mentioned this a couple of times as a consultant. So what do you do? What is the main way that you make your income? The majority of what I do, the, that comes from the content marketing consulting stuff. So that's like with, you know, I've mentioned Close.io a few times. They've been my favorite client that I've ever had. Um, and so with them, like I, I originally, this is such a funny story. I originally opened this relationship with their founder, CEO, Steli Efti by reaching out and letting him know about a feature on my blog. So it's kind of one of those full circle stories of me grabbing a quote that he had from some video or some talk he gave. Um, I implemented it into a blog post. I got my blog post up to like a thousand shares. And then I reached out and said, hey, you know, this post on my blog is getting a lot of traction. Just wanted to let you know about this. And, And that sort of evolved into this relationship where now I'm creating content for their blog. And so I'll write uh, two or three posts per month for them. Um, And then built into that is the promotion. So I promise them, you know, like highlighting the post to my email list of, you know, 37,000 subscribers and going out and I'm careful, you know, not to promise that I'm going to mention them on any of the publications I write for because that's a definite Um, no-no. But I, I will say like, hey, you know, over the course of, two to three months after this blog post goes live, I'm going to be pitching my editors on content that we could weave in, um, you know, stories and examples that we pull from the Close.io blog also. Um, And so when it supports a greater story that I'm already working on, then that's when I'm able to sort of tastefully weave in, you know, this resource as well. And so that's kind of my my main gig. That's, That's sort of the process I follow with all the clients I work for, um, you know, some of the other ones into it, Zendesk, QuickBooks. Um, yeah, things like that. That's, that's my primary. Are these clients that you have on retainer or is it for a period of time and then they move on? Honestly, it depends. Like it, it varies for every single relationship I've ever had. Um, the, the close IO one is on retainer, which is nice. So I like to try and always have one solid retainer contract on and then, um, the others will be a little bit one-off. So like with QuickBooks, that's totally one-off. I can just pitch them anytime I feel like taking on new projects. Um, and if, it, if the pitch is up their alley, then they'll say, sure, let's go for it. Or they'll have, you know, some tweaks to it or, or shoot it down. Right. Um, and then I've got some clients where I'll just like take something on like once a month fish and we kind of like fall into a routine with each other. But yeah, I, I definitely go for, some sort of monthly recurring contract whenever I can. Mm-hmm. And I think you are very upfront about your pricing because I was looking at your site and it said something like, here's the minimum that you need. You need to have at least $5,000 a month for at least three months to start working with me. And then, then you can start talking. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, totally. So, um, you know, speaking to the three month thing, content marketing takes time to pay off, especially if you're not already doing it. And so that's kind of why I set my price 
to the point that it's at, um, you know, $2,500 per blog post essentially. And, and in order to see results, you really need to publish about twice a month, something in depth at least. Um, and you know, after you publish, we're going to spend a ton of time promoting the content as well. And so that's sort of where, where I've backed into that frequency. And then, you know, the three months being the time to pay off and, and yeah, that's, that's kind of the, the loose starting arrangement that I begin most of my consulting contracts with is is basically five thousand a month for three months, and then at the end of that three months, I provide kind of a detailed report of like you know I, I get Google Analytics access for my clients, um, so I'm able to show like this is how much traffic we drove, and it came from these sources, and we got you know these syndications and these mentions and these influencers promoted and, and things like that. So it's kind of like the three month is a trial. And then we'll see from there where we'd like to go. Mm -hmm. And what kind of results are the clients hoping for? So they've agreed to pay you what seems to be at least $15,000 for six blog posts. And I want to get a little bit more into the mechanics of that. But at the end of that three months, what are they hoping to get? Almost all of them. And this is, you know, this is a, a metric that can be sort of chosen by the clients, but almost all my clients, I will really strongly encourage to, to say like, let's not worry as much about traffic, but let's worry more about email subscribers or for more of a SaaS business trial signups. So we'll, we'll kind of optimize for like, not just can we get 10,000 people to your blog, but can we get the right 1000 people? And, and if we do this the right way, from that 1000, maybe we'll have 50 to 100 people sign up for a trial. And, and, you know, once, once people sign up for the trial, the rest of their marketing funnel should kick in and they should be converting, you know, on the, on their average figures. So that's kind of like what I attempt at least to get people to care most about is email subscribers or trial signups. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so when you're doing this, are you building a landing page for this content or is it integrated into whatever system they already have in terms of like a blog post thing? I will always integrate into whatever system they currently have Um, just for the sake of not having to, you know, push for a month while we build a blog or build Mm -hmm. out a custom sort of, you know, content delivery mechanism. So, you know, typically most of the startups I work for have a blog that runs on WordPress, which is a dream because I, I can just pop in and, and uh, schedule content directly rather than having to go through, a, you know, Google Docs and someone else has to copy and paste and reformat and stuff like that. Right. And so if you're working for, for Zendesk or any one of these companies, how is it that you're able to create the content for them? Do you have to interview them? Do you have to hire writers to do this? How are you able to do that? That honestly, I mean, that varies also from client to client. Um, with some of them, like with uh, with Close.io, I recently did a big project where um, I actually hosted a, a virtual summit for them. So I went out and I interviewed 55 people and that was the content that I created for for two months for them. So we, we paused blog posts. We wanted to try something new basically. Um, and so, you know, other examples would be, yeah, interviewing someone on their team um, to sort of like fuel, like this is an expert talking about this topic. And so we'll like weave an interview into like an overarching keyword phrase that we're going after. But, um, I would say like half of the content I do is intentionally designed to be written solely by me without needing to 
rely on anyone else for anything. And I kind of do that just so that I have content that I can, you know, crank out and get a quick win right away. Mm-hmm. That way I'm not like waiting for so-and-so on their team to get back to me or for the 10 people I emailed for an interview series to get back to me and schedule time to do it. So I like to vary it. Did you say, I just want to get this right. Did you get, you say like 50% of the content is written by you? Oh yeah, totally. Okay. 50% of the content's written by me. I do have a team of writers that now helps me out because my, mm-hmm. my volume has grown beyond what I can personally do. So the way that I sort of look at the, the outsourcing component is I'll outsource first drafts. So I'll have, um, I'll, I'll put together an outline for what I see a post, um, covering, and then I'll like throw in like a few links, like let's, you know, let's link to this study. Let's have some, you know, stats pulled from this article or this guide. And then I'll sort of give them like direction and then I'll say go. And then like within two or three days, I'll get back a first draft and then I'll sort of, you know, inject my voice, go in and add more depth and pull in screenshots and, and make it more of a tactical piece of content. But yeah, that's, that's how I've been able to basically scale this process. I see. But, but, uh, the way I'm getting the feeling, cause you described yourself as a freelancer. So you primarily work by yourself and you have some, uh, you outsource some things to people offsite that help you. And that way you can continue to take on the workload that you're taking on. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. I've got, I would say three regular writers that I use to help me with first drafts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So how long have you been working as a independent content marketing expert? Oh man, that's a loaded question. <laughs> I've, I so I've been I doing. Was. <laughs> I love that. Well, I've been doing content marketing for, I guess, really like seriously for four years. But mm-hmm. you know, as as a consultant, two years. Yeah. Okay. So I, I was able to quit my last quote unquote day job doing content marketing in, let's see, that was early 2016, I and see. then I was. I booked a, a contract with LinkedIn. So that was my first my first really big client, mm-hmm. which is amazing. That is very cool. This is, okay, it's just in case you guys are, for whatever reason, weren't paying attention, were asleep at the beginning of the show, Ryan is a pretty young guy. We were just talking about it because I'm a pretty old guy myself. And he's only 28, so the timeline all makes sense to me. So you've been working for about four years. Two of those have been independent and just you doing your thing, right? Yep, okay. got that right. All right, so everybody's probably listening to this and thinking, this sounds like a pretty good gig and the numbers (laughs) sound really good too. So to do something that you love, to kind of give your opinion on things and to kind of use your expertise to make a living, that sounds amazing. It's like, that's like being an artist. This is incredible. How much money does somebody like you make in a year? I was just looking at my <clears throat> what my 2017 is shaping up to be, so I'll give you that. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to be right around 170,000, and that's that's wow. not all from content marketing consulting. That's not, so I've that's got not all from that. No, not at all. So my okay. my blog gets about 200,000 monthly readers. So I've got a couple of like ad platforms set up, um, mm-hmm. affiliate links, and that that kind of just sits on autopilot essentially. And that's like a few thousand dollars a month in, in relatively passive income. I should do an income report, by the way, to break this all down. Yes. Uh, a guy who's <laughs> a, a business, an entrepreneur major should know these things, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay, let's, and let's I, just about $20,000 in course sales too. How, how much? 
about $20,000 in online course sales. Okay. All right. So if we were to break up the pie, if mm -hmm. we take your annual income of 170000 what percentages would you kind of divvy things up in terms of consultation? That's got to be the bulk of it, right? Oh, that's definitely, that's like probably 70% would be my okay. guess. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then courses would come courses. next, certainly. Okay. Let's talk about your courses a little bit. I know that you teach on a couple of different platforms and you also offer your own course too, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've got a few different courses. I don't have a content marketing course yet, which is, which is a huge black hole right now. That's a major void in my life. So my goal for, for next year is to get a content marketing course up. Um, but my biggest course right now is on idea validation. So it kind of like walks you through the process of, I've got this idea for a business. How do I go about acquiring my first handful of customers without spending a ton of time and money essentially? And how much does that cost? That one is, I think it's now, it's on a waiting list right now. So I'm not taking new students because I've got about 150 that are <laughs> very time consuming to keep up with kind of coaching one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. to some degree. Um, I want to say it was 199 or 799 with like a more hands-on coaching with me. I see. So 199 gets you in, but if you want more one-on-one, -on -one, it's 799. Right. Yeah. The 799 was like, you know, we do two phone calls a month together um, versus the 199 was more of like a, you know, we have a Facebook group, we have a couple other like discussion boards, Slack group, things like that. Right. And what do you get for that course? Are there video content? Is there, what, what do you get? Yeah, you get video lectures, um, written lectures, again, my superpower, right? So mm -hmm. way better at writing super in-depth content um, than doing direct to camera stuff. So I leaned on the written stuff. Um, you basically get a ton of you know, private lectures written by me. Um, and then, yeah, like PDF workbooks, um, things that are designed to get you from just consuming advice to taking action. Because I think that's, especially for a course like idea validation, that's by far the most important metric is, you know, how many students go through and actually end up launching something at the end of the course mm, versus okay. how many, you know, watched every video. <laughs> And where else are you teaching uh, other platforms? That's actually it. I've done like little small guest appearances um, on some Udemy courses, um, but that's really it. Like I, I, I self-host all my courses. Oh, okay. For some reason, I thought I read somewhere that you were also on Skillshare. Ah, so I did do like a guest appearance on a content marketing course there. Yeah. It was kind okay. of like an interview style thing though. I see. Okay. I got another question coming in here. And uh, I, I think we already talked about this, but let's just make sure that uh, Farai, I think that's how you say his name, he's like, is email marketing still effective? Oh, absolutely. I think it's, you know, for, for me at least, that's sort of my home base for when I launch a new piece of content is I go to my email list and I'll, I'll send an email update or, you know, like if I'm planning on doing a post on a topic that I know my, my audience is going to love, I will ping them like the week before I publish a post and I'll ask them a question. Like, you know, one example is I published this post earlier this year on my picks for the best, like I think 75 business books that I've ever read. Mm -hmm. And before I published that post, I sent an email to my list and I said, what are your favorite business books? And so I had people weigh in in the comments section of where this post is eventually going to be. And so 
then I was able to, you know, take all their suggestions into account, spend a month reading some of these other books and, and figuring out if which ones I might want to add into my list. And then, yeah, I was able to publish the post about a month after that and then get another spike of, you know, one to 2,000 people clicking through from my email list and reading the post. So I say email marketing 100%. Yeah, but I mean, if you don't have a list to send your emails to, then it's not going to be your most effective channel um, aside from if you're in like the validation stage. So, you know, if, if you're using email marketing to start conversations with people, then I think, yes, it can be very useful. Mm. Well, I, I don't think we're alone in this. We we have a pretty good email list. And when we shoot an email to, li- email li- uh, email to our list, we get great results, high conversion, high open rates because they, they're all interested in the content that we want to share with them. And so I don't know why he's asking that question in terms of is it still effective as if uh, I guess everybody's inbox is getting really crowded these days. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely sort of an, an art to curating that relationship with the individual subscriber because I think there's there's more demand for their attention than there ever has mm-hmm. been. But I mean, moving forward, it's only going to go up and up and up. So you do have to stand out. And, and I think the way that you stand out with email marketing is is not by having clickbaity um, email subject lines. I think it's by starting out the relationship in a very sort of, you know, one-on-one. Hi, I'm Ryan. Like my first, when you sign up for anything on my site, you get an autoresponder that says, hello from Ryan. And I kind of just tell them about me and, you know, why I do what I do. And I ask them some questions and I get God, probably like a dozen responses a day to the questions I ask in those introduction emails. That's great. Good tip there. Okay, so you've been talking a lot about superpower and you've been talking about it from the beginning to now even because that's your superpowers writing it or one of your superpowers. Well, what if you're that's not your superpower and we understand the importance of writing and becoming an expert through words? Do you have any tips for people who wouldn't describe themselves as that's their their core competency? You know, I'm a big believer in outsourcing also what I'm not great at. So if if I can find someone who is, you know, taking an example with my podcast, like I am by no means a designer, um, but I have someone who designs my header images, who designs every image that I use on my blog, who who makes all the logos that I use for different projects. And so my advice would definitely be to to find someone that you can outsource writing help to. And it doesn't have to mean like, you know, go find a ghostwriter to do 100% of your content, but, you know, do what you can to write out a first draft and then find someone who can be more of an editor or a content advisor for you. And I think that it's something that, you know, you're, you're only going to get better at writing if you want to get better at writing and if you keep doing it. And so, acknowledge right now if that's something that you want to do and and I think if you don't that's when you start moving towards the direction of of having someone who can be more of like a a full-time writer for you Mm. you mentioned a bunch of business books that you thought were great is there a book that you think might help somebody kind of get their head wrapped around how to communicate their thoughts Uh, a writing book maybe you know, I don't have a, a specific writing book that comes mm-hmm. top of mind, but I will say 
you know, as, as someone who learns through doing a lot, um, I think just reading anything from Malcolm Gladwell will, will definitely point you in the right direction for how to become a better writer, you know, everything from the words he uses. Like he uses such just like awesomely descriptive words and language in his, in his content to, you know, like his structure for how he tackles an entire section of the book. Like he'll do, you know, point example point, or he'll have, you know, these three studies that he references and he pulls insights from them. I think it's, um, he's a really good person to just take some cues from. And I, and I see like influencing, you know, him influencing a lot of my writing style since I began reading his work. That's a great tip. Malcolm Gladwell. He's the, uh, it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at something, right? <laughs> he popularized that. Yeah. yeah. That wasn't his original research, but I think in the book Outliers, I want to say he popularized mm -hmm. that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Let's see here. And I'm looking, I've, I've got like six pages of notes here. Trying to follow <laughs> this. Is there a question or something that I need to ask you about or something we should be talking about? You know, I think like if there was one other thing I just wanted to touch on it mm -hmm. even more than we did earlier, it was just that like for, for the people listening today who want to get to a level where you're charging, you know, four or five figures for consulting agreements instead of just doing, you know, $100, $200 logo designs or, or whatever that may be. I think it's it's really important to say it's such a long game. Like I don't think you can go in expecting to just, you know, quadruple your prices tomorrow and, and have the exact same kind of pitch. I think you need to really focus on the relationship building. So I guess this is kind of coming full circle into what we were talking about earlier. It's like, you know, you're not going to get a hundred thousand dollar check the the day that you send a cold email to someone. So figure out what you can uniquely provide and then just start doing that for free at first and, and give them a sample of that value until, until they're willing to get on a more serious conversation with you about paid projects. I love that. It really resonates with what we're trying to do at the future, which is to try to give away as much as possible for as little as possible, knowing that this value that you create for the world, it doesn't go to waste. So eventually when we make a product or launch a course the people know that the value is going to be there so it's a very easy decision for them to purchase or support us in one way or exactly the other. so you're you're writing you've created an, an audience for yourself uh, you position yourself as a content marketing expert which you've been able to convert into currency and equity for other clients sometimes that work is interesting to you and sometimes it's not I assume the things that ring more true to who you are and the, your self-expression, the happier you are and writing things about you don't care about as much is then it becomes a job. Does some of this lead you into being sought after as a public speaker or, or things like that? Do you enjoy that, that aspect of it? I'm honestly still learning about that. I've done, let's see, the the first, like, what I would say real public speaking gig I did was uh, this summer. So summer of 2017. Okay. Um, oh my gosh, what's it called? How Design Live. There oh, we go. Okay. So a lot of your listeners are probably yes. familiar with it. Um, it was in Chicago, I think, this summer, or maybe it was in spring. But that was my first, like, real paid speaking gig. And I had a blast doing that. Um, everything from preparation um, to delivering it to honestly just having conversations with people. 
um, is what I really liked the most. So peeling off the the one-on-one relationships, I've had, you know, a dozen or so people that I still keep in touch with that I met at the, um, at How Design. Mm-hmm. And just from our personal level, I mean, you were talking about sharing your expertise. It's an education thing. That's really what content marketing should be about. Do you feel differently about this when you actually see people and not just like write something and you talk to them and you see how you're connecting with them? Does that affect you differently? I would say, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm able to, when I am like one-on-one with someone and I'm teaching them about content marketing or, or freelancing or whatever it may be, um, I'm able to really sort of tailor that conversation. Um, I, I hesitate to call it education or teaching because I think I learn something from everyone that I work with in this capacity one-on-one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say it sort of gets individualized and, and I'll take things away that I learn from when I'm talking about content marketing. I'll have someone like bring up an interesting idea or share something, you know, small that worked for them. And I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't ignore that little thing that worked. Like just because, you know, the 10 best content marketers haven't said it works, like dig into that little unique thing that's working for you. And I think that's, that's what I would say is the biggest takeaway from doing the one-on-one stuff. Mm. Definitely. Do you love what you do? I love parts of what I do. I've, I've found things that I love doing. Um, I I've learned that, you know, what I love doing sort of shifts and grows and morphs over time too. Um, I'm getting to a point where I, I don't love as much writing actual client work. I still love writing for my own blog. There's just something like so liberating and freeing about when I'm writing for my own blog where I just don't have to care about the format or, or the language I use. And it's just like raw me. Um, but, but the more I take on client work over the years, I'd say like the, the less stimulating it tends to be. Um, and that's not always the case. Some client work, I get to talk about subjects that I'm much more interested in than others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like with something like QuickBooks, it's a lot more financially heavy. And so that's not as interesting to me as, as when I can talk about something like, you know, freelancing or how to build a consulting business. Um, so that's kind of been, been a growing evolution of learning what I love and, and seeing how that changes over time. Is there a way that you see yourself doing more of what you love and less of what you don't love and still grow your business and make money? Oh, yes. Yes. And I, I kind of alluded to it earlier. I'm working on a, a SaaS tool of sorts that sort of helps content marketers or even salespeople um, to automate outreach um, and, and using sort of the Chrome extension of grabbing links and finding who you should reach out to at the companies behind those links. Um, and then sending emails to them. That's kind of my, what I see as the future of stepping into having a business that is more of a subscription-based service where I don't have to worry about how I'm going to scale my individual writing. Right. So you're... Because the writing stuff's not scalable. Right. I mean, it, it, it is to a degree, but I, I would reach a point where I'm literally just being an editor instead of doing any writing. And that's not very mm-hmm. fun. This idea of you creating this subscription model or some kind of tool for SaaS, are you spending your own money investing in this to build this product out? Because I assume you're not a developer. You're not coding the software yourself. 
I'm yeah, that's that's a really good question. So right now I haven't invested any money, just time. Um, and, and what I'm trying to do, so I'm cobbling together little bits and pieces of mm-hmm. it um, from friends essentially. And I'm trying to find the right partner who is a developer who has um, the, the right skills to help me bring this to life from a technical standpoint. Um, and then I will be bringing the audience and the promotion and the selling and the relationship building, the partnerships, things like that. So I'm actually kind of in the process of trying to find a partner for it, really. I see. So this is still kind of early on in the the gestation of your idea in terms of it becoming an actual product. Oh, yes. Right now, it's it's essentially a bunch of cobbled together Excel spreadsheets. <laughs> I see. Uh, I only have one last question for you. And it's, it's somebody just slipped in. I was going to wrap up the show, but Maria wants to know this thing. Maria wants to know, which traffic gaining strategies should new blogs prioritize? Ooh, I personally believe that when you're brand new to any content creation, whether it's, you know, if you have a blog or if you're wanting to do a YouTube channel or a podcast, whatever, I think that your biggest bang for your buck is always going to be in guest posting. So when you're first getting started, you're probably not going to have the ability to get onto the sites like, you know, Forbes, Business Insider, Entrepreneur Inc. Um, They look for people who have more seasoned track records, but you can go to people that have established blogs within your space and you know pitch them on content that their audience would be interested in and then you know do it for free but what you get out of it is you know this person who maybe has you know 50,000 blog readers a month or or even more right like you can find people who who are interested in taking guest posts who have millions of readers per month Um, I take guest posts all the time from friends or from, you know, people who just have a really, really good idea and and they're great at what they want to write about. So I think go out and guest post, um, use the strategies I talk about in the post on cold emailing on my blog. um, And and you can definitely, definitely land some guest posts. That's a great suggestion. So it sounds to me like you're saying you got to cut your teeth on something. You got to gain some traction. So there's this middle step. You might not get to Forbes or Entrepreneur Magazine or Fast Company right away, but there's a bunch of people in the middle between where you're at and where they're at and, and just offer up ideas to them, write a post, and hopefully they'll they'll post it on their blog. Is that the idea? Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the idea in a nutshell. And what I do to help scale this, or what I have done in the past rather, is um, my, my process is like I'm going to publish – the most in-depth thing on my blog first. So don't neglect writing for your own blog. Still write mm. for your blog, but take, you know, like if you're if you're talking about the 10 steps to do something within a post on your blog, take step number three and, and pitch that as just an idea as a guest post to someone. And you can write up something, you know, shorter that can just expand on that one little minute topic. And then, you know, within your post, link back to, and here's where to learn more about all my other blah, 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 steps to the process. Fantastic. So make it easy for yourself. Yeah, that sounds great. So you're saying like, don't give all your best stuff away. You got to be able to develop and, and nurture your own blog too, right? Right. And I think, you know, there, there could be examples of times when it's worth giving your best stuff mm-hmm. away. Like if you have the opportunity through a mutual connection to write for a blog that, you know, you know, a hundred thousand people are going to see that post, then you know, it's worth going all out for those opportunities for sure. Okay. Hey, I just want to thank you, Ryan. 
I, I think you're a breath of fresh air. Mo most people, especially, uh, I don't want to say like an old man, but your age aren't so confident <laughs> to share in such a transparent way. But I think it fits as part of your whole ethos about education. And in and, and doing so, you establish expertise. You've done really well for yourself. I wish I could say that a couple of years out of school, I was making the kind of money that you're making. That's fantastic. Just wish you the best uh, just because of what you're trying to do. And in, in a way that you're just, the, the conversation that we're having is so actionable and so just concise and clear cut. So I'm gonna recommend everybody go check out your website. So how do people find out more about you and to get in touch with you? Yeah, I am, I am Mr. Accessible. So you can email me anytime. I'm just Ryan, R-Y-A-N, at ryrob.com. And that's R-Y-R-O-B, as in boy. So yeah, um, that's my blog. That's the home base, really, for everything, um, for the podcasts, the courses, the guides, um, the blog content. And yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm most active on social um, with Twitter. So I'm the, T-H-E, Ryan Robinson there. I'm Ryan Robinson, and you're listening to The Future. The Future is hosted by me, Chris Doe. The show is edited by Stuart Schuster. Big thanks to Adam Sanborn, who composed our theme song. To subscribe to The Future Podcast, check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and now SoundCloud. Make sure you rate and review our episodes. Don't miss out on upcoming events, live streams, workshops, and announcements by going to thefuture.com and sign up for the newsletter link at the bottom. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Future Is Here. Thanks for listening. That's it for this episode. See you in the future.